1: I'm Debbie Sorensen, a clinical psychologist and co-host of the podcast Psychologists Off the Clock. I'm here today with Taylor Pendergrass. Taylor is a civil rights lawyer for the ACLU working in Denver. He's been gathering voices about the U.S. criminal justice system for over a decade. And he's also been involved in some important criminal justice cases like stop and frisk, deceptive police interrogations, and Cases About Prison Conditions, and we're here today to talk about Taylor's book, Six by Ten, Stories from Solitary. Uh, he co-edited, co-edited it with Matteo Hoke as part of the Voices of Witness series, which uses oral history to amplify oppressed voices. Thanks for being here today, Taylor.
0: Thanks, Debbie. Thrilled to be here.
1: Taylor, let's start by having you tell us about how the book came about.
0: Sure. It wasn't about... 2010, when I was living in, in New York City and I was working for the New York ACLU, and we were aware at the New York ACLU about the practice of solitary confinement in New York state prisons, in New York state jails. And there had been a pretty significant victory in the earlier in the 2000s with regard to providing some protections for people with the most serious mental health problems from being exposed to solitary confinement, but the momentum had kind of petered out. And so I decided, uh, along with a colleague, that we were going to mount a campaign to try to take that victory to, and push it to the next level and, and really aim at abolishing solitary confinement to the extent that, that we could achieve it. And the first step we thought in that process was just going out uh, to prisons all over the state and talking to as many people as we possibly could about their experiences in solitary confinement uh, for the purposes eventually of of writing a human rights report, and also for the purposes of uh, the investigation that we wanted to do to file a lawsuit. Over the course of uh, maybe six months, we probably spoke with about 120 uh, men and women who had spent anywhere from months to decades in solitary confinement in the New York state prison system. We came back to the office in New York City and spent some months more uh, synthesizing all of that information along with data that we had gotten about how frequently people were exposed to solitary confinement and the reasons that prison officials put them there. And we put all that information into a report and ultimately uh, filed a lawsuit with it. And that campaign got off to a great start. But I felt a certain amount of ambivalence about the process because in in the act of trying to put together the best possible case or to summarize the information into a human rights report, we naturally were just taking slices of people's stories, you know, just the Mostly focusing only on kind of the worst experiences that they had while they were in solitary confinement, and for the purposes of the lawsuit in particular, we are looking for the best possible facts for a plaintiff to present to convince a federal judge that that practice was unconstitutional. And as a product of that kind of strategy, you're you're um, weeding out or leaving behind the stories of people whose whose uh, circumstances are much more difficult, whose cases are much more complicated. People who might have committed serious acts of violence, either to get into prison or to land them in solitary confinement and so While the advocacy campaign and the lawsuit was was kind of well underway and and ultimately became quite successful i was I was struggling with all of the human stories that I had heard and been moved by very deeply that were nowhere kind of presented in the advocacy work that I was doing. And it was around this time that Mateo Hoke, who is a good friend of mine from my time going to law school in Boulder, Colorado, was swinging through New York. And he stayed with with me and my wife for a few days. And I was telling him about my work. And I was also telling him about this ambivalence that I had. Matteo had just completed a project of taking oral histories in the West Bank and Gaza from Palestinians, and he was about to launch his own book tour and, and publish this book. And so he was kind of done with the active part of his project. And as I was telling him about uh, my experience, he suggested, you know, we should really do an oral history book About these stories, these are really important stories to tell. They are stories that are not ever going to be the face of a lawsuit, or you know, be um, some be presented in a long, you know, holistic way in a human rights report. This is the perfect type of story for a book like the one that he had just he had just done, and. I was really attracted to that idea, but also um, extraordinarily uh, exhausted by my current work. So that, that idea sat for a while. I think it was a couple years, actually, before I called Mateo back and said, hey, I'm ready to do this thing. You're right. Let's, let's, let's get this, this going. So that was really the genesis of the book. And from that point, we then kind of launched the process of actually um, collecting the stories that, that ultimately appear in Six by Ten.
1: It's a happy coincidence that you and Matteo happened to know each other and make this connection.
0: Yeah, it really, it seemed uh, fated in some way that, that we were in a position to do that. The time, not only his, his skill set and expertise and vision about um, oral history, but just that the timing worked out that we, we had both ended up being between projects and jobs at the precise moment that we were able to get the book project underway.
1: Well your book centers around the stories of these people and m- most of whom have been in co- solitary confinement as you as you say and also a few from family members and people who have worked in prison settings and you're right i mean they're nuanced they're complicated they're many of them are heartbreaking why personal stories i mean i know that you had these stories and you felt like you wanted to share them but do you have a sense of why the story itself matters so much
0: yeah i think that one thing that um, is probably universal in all of the social justice work that I have been involved with or exposed to, but certainly with regard to criminal justice reform, is that the, the practices um, and the barbarism and the horror that we visit on other human beings occurs um, to a large extent because they are totally dehumanized and because they are totally hidden. And there are strong intersections with that dehumanization with regard to all forms of oppression, including you know, structural racism and homophobia um, and ableism and all sorts of other other threads. But, you know, when we think when I think as an advocate about what's going to be needed to totally transform our criminal justice system to one that is humane and respects human dignity and is actually effective in keeping us safe that's as much a legal project as it is a cultural project, right? I think we have to change our culture. We have to expose people to the fact that the, the people that we're throwing in cages are whole human beings that they retain uh, and should retain their dignity, even if they've done, you know, a horrible thing. Um, and the best way to do that, the most effective way to do that is storytelling is putting people the public proximate to stories about what real human beings experience when they go inside our jails and, and prisons. And I think that the the stories that we tried to collect in Six by Ten were really aimed at reaching people, uh, you know, meeting people where they were at and telling them a story that they could relate to, that they could understand that they at some level could put themselves in the shoes of the person who is experiencing this type of total isolation that people experience in solitary confinement. And the oral history format just lent itself so well to that uh, endeavor. Every chapter in the book for the folks who have spent time in solitary confinement and are solitary confinement survivors starts with just a personal history of that, of that person's life. You know, who were they as a child how did they grow up? Um, you know, what were their uh, passions in high school? Um, did they go to college? You know, were they incarcerated early age? And that is all was all quite intentional, because we wanted to give everyone uh, who read this book, the ability to relate to that person as a, as a whole person, not as a as a quote, unquote, criminal, or not just as someone who has been in solitary confinement. And I think that The feedback we've gotten from the book so far and the experience I have in my other criminal justice reform work outside of this book really suggests that the only way we're going to get to a place where we've radically transformed our approach to crime and punishment in America is by making sure that people really understand the consequences that people suffer when they're in our criminal justice system and that they can see those people as more whole human beings, not just as the other, out of sight and out of mind.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was my experience reading your book. I kind of knew that this was happening in theory, seemed bad. <laughs> and, and yet I knew so little. And I think reading the stories just really helped me understand it so much better and really does grab you in a way. Um, and I know that you've, it was challenging to get these stories, right? Getting people who have been in solitary confinement to talk and to talk publicly, to even access their stories. I mean, these are really oppressed voices in the sense that sometimes you can't even like find them. So what are some of the challenges that you faced and how did you end up getting access to these stories?
0: Right. As you, as you suggest, and I, I think this is true, there are no, no person in our country that I am aware of is more isolated and removed and hidden from our society than people that that we the United States are locking up in solitary confinement. And I'm sure we'll get into the details a a bit later, but in general, so folks have some appreciation of the context, people in solitary confinement generally are, are in a small cell 23 or 24 hours a day with no meaningful human contact, Often, but not always, no reading materials or anything else to occupy their time. And importantly here, um, with regard to the process of gathering these stories, they're often not permitted to make any phone calls or even to, to send or receive mail unless it's, it's legal mail. So when we set out to write the book, we recognized that this was a huge challenge, obviously, in front of us. And we, we had a goal of trying to collect stories from as many different corners of the United States as we could, from as many different types of people as we could, and from as many different types of detention settings as we could. You know, immigration detention, jail, uh, prison, juvenile detention facilities. And the reason we wanted that scope and that uh, variation is because solitary confinement is not a phenomena in the united states that's restricted to any one state or any one like bad jail or bad prison it is pervasive and it's everywhere so um, that was our goal and we knew that we had uh, a real challenge in front of us but we started out by really using the networks of attorneys and advocates and activists that i was in touch with as an aclu lawyer who are all over the country and are often litigating or, or filing cases or advocating on behalf of people who are incarcerated and who are in solitary confinement. And, you know, the first step of that really was just making phone calls and sending emails and telling people, hey, this is this book project. This is what we're trying to accomplish with it. Um, do you know anyone that you think might be willing to talk with us? And, you know, there's several difficult uh, hurdles here, or at least um, things that we were keeping really present in our mind. I mean, one, we're often reaching out in the first instances to advocates and activists that we don't have a close relationship with. And I think, you know, a cold call saying we want to get somebody's story and put it in a book um, engender a lot of reasonable skepticism on the side of people who are hearing from us for the first time. And then at the, at the point where we were actually identifying some people who might be good candidates to talk to, there's just a host of considerations uh, around that for, for them, you know, and, and making sure that we're respecting like their autonomy and their power in telling stories. I mean, one, there's the trauma of being in solitary confinement at the moment that you're in it. And we were very concerned about what it would mean to be gathering stories that, that would have people either um, telling their st- living their trauma as they're telling the story or reliving it for the people who are out of solitary confinement at the time that we we spoke with them. There was uh, very real fears about retaliation from prison staff and jail staff for people who wanted to to talk with us. And um, then there were the practical challenges. Uh, In some cases where we were able to locate people in prison systems that allowed legal phone calls... We did the interviews over the phone, often over a series of weeks or, or months, over many, many phone calls. And we would record the audio on our side of the line. And then we would ultimately transcribe it, um, reduce it down to a, a readable oral history, all in conjunction with the narrator, which is the ethic of, of oral history. The, the, the narrator does have a high degree con- of control over what story they tell and the voice that it appears in. Um, And that that was probably the easiest way that we gathered stories from people who are inside. We, we definitely tried um, and adopted some more creative approaches that are probably less best practices from an oral history perspective, but were just necessary for us to get some of these stories. So that includes in one case, uh, letter correspondence between us and one of the narrators who you know, would just, we would write questions, he would write letters back to us, it would take weeks for both of those exchanges to happen. And we gathered his story over the course of like 10 months, just by written correspondence. And then there's a, there are a few other people who would have occasional access to a um, email system that some prisons provide to people who are incarcerated, that's a pay-based system that, that it's like a, a tablet that they can use for certain periods um, of the week in this case. And so there was some ability there to communicate by email. And then a lot of other stories that we gathered were from people who have survived solitary confinement and were still incarcerated, but they were in the general prison population. So access to them was still difficult, but much more obtainable. We could have in-person visits with them at the jails and the prisons and and the detention facilities. And a few of the folks that appear in the book are people who have actually been out on the street. And some of the um, some of the reasons that we got stories from people who are out of solitary in the general prison population or back out on the street was because of the difficulty of accessing people directly in solitary and the challenges and concerns we had about talking to people who are kind of living with that trauma at the current moment. But also part of the reason was because we think a very important dimension of the story is what it's like to live after you've been in solitary for months or or decades. And so a few of the stories, I think, really elevate the experience of having been in solitary for 23 years, like Brian Nelson, and then being released to the streets of Chicago. And like, what does that feel like? What does that look like? Um, How do you how do you process the the world outside after you've been held in a small box for such a long time by yourself? So we were eager to both have people experience the kind of visceral, this is what it's like to be in solitary, but also to give them a deeper appreciation about the scars and trauma that lingers for the rest of the person's life after, after they're outside.
1: Yeah. So you mentioned how pervasive the use of solitary confinement is in the United States. Why? Why do we even have it? What's the basic principle and what's it used for in the U.S.? That's a
0: great question. There's a, so there's a couple different threads here, I think, to connect. Um, one at the, at the kind of macro level from a policy and legal perspective. In the 1990s, really kind of tracing back to the, to the war on drugs that was started by President Nixon there's just an ever-increasing emphasis and, and thirst for more and more incarceration and more and more punishment. And that permeated every legal system in the United States, the federal system, all of the state systems, and all of our local and county systems. So we started locking people up far more often for way longer periods of time. And at the same time, we cut prison programming dramatically. So, and, and also um, we really de-emphasized as a matter of philosophy, any emphasis on rehabilitation It was all about punishment it all became about punishment. And so the prisons were swelling, um, getting extremely overcrowded at the same time that we were actually re- actively reducing the resources and staffing in some of those states for management. And we were putting all sorts of people who had committed very low level offenses like drug and property crimes in with um, people who had a really deep history of trauma and had committed some acts of violence. And it was just a a predictably toxic and horrible mix that resulted in many states having violent prison outbreaks and riots because the prisons were totally overcrowded, and people were sitting there um, 16, 18 hours a day with literally nothing to do because there was no programming. The response at the federal level to that um, situation was not to re-examine the number of people that we were locking up and and start to decarcerate and reduce that, that um, amount. The, the response from the federal level under President Clinton and supported by Joe Biden was to pass a, a law the 1994 crime bill and a few other um, laws that provided deep financial incentives from the federal government to states for them to build maximum security prisons, which almost exclusively meant 100% solitary confinement in most of these prisons. That's the era in which the federal prison system, the Bureau of Prisons built its Um, federal supermax and and administrative detention um, center ADX here in Colorado where I am. And it's also uh, the time in which a lot of states took that money from the federal government, which was conditioned on the proposition that they build those types of prison facilities and also that they dramatically reduce the availability of parole for people who are incarcerated. There's a, a provision in these laws that required states to enact so-called truth in sentencing, which meant that someone was sentenced to 10 years, they would have to serve at least 85% of that time, even if when you a judge or someone else were to look at that sentence and think, wow, that was way too severe, or if the person in prison demonstrated great behavior and made great progress, there's no flexibility anymore to let that person out out early. So as a com- combined factor of kind of this cultural trend of wanting more punishment, alongside this these, fe- these very um, big federal incentives and similar kind of incentives and, and fiscal sponsorship at the state level, there was just an explosion of solitary confinement and the use of solitary confinement throughout the entire all the correctional systems within the United States and the you know, people at the county jail level, and within juvenile detention facilities, saw what was happening within the federal system and the state system in terms of building these solitary confinement units um, out. And they said, hey, you know, this this makes sense. Um, Let's let's do the same thing. And this explosion, you know, really sits on top of a, a deep historical precedent in the United States. Like even though the modern era of solitary confinement really um, grew significantly starting in the late 80s and early 1990s. Every prison and jail in America has always had a hole or some type of solitary confinement situation in in their facility. The the first solitary confinement units were actually built um, in Eastern State Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, which was run by the Quakers. And the the idea at the outset of solitary confinement was the opportunity to provide the person who is being placed in isolation with with the ability to be penitent and to communicate directly with God about their crime or violation and to ask for forgiveness. So it has this kind of ironically um, benign initial intent in the mid-1800s, starting in Eastern, but, you know, folks who have watched Shawshank Redemption or are familiar with other depictions of incarceration in America know that the hole and solitary has already existed. So that foundation was there. And then as a result of cultural factors and, and some policy and legal factors in the 1990s, it just it exploded and became, um, you know, the, the largest network of, of solitary confinement. Uh, detention anywhere in the world. I mean, w- certainly America um, outpaces all countries in the world when it comes to incarceration, and we use solitary confinement more than any other country uh, in the world as well.
1: And I know that that there's an issue with some particularly vulnerable people that that get in solitary confinement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sometimes it's even as a form of so-called protection. And yet
0: Right. Yeah. There are in, in most jails and prisons, I would say there's there's three pathways that people are thrown into solitary confinement. The first is for breaking a prison rule, what's often known as disciplinary segregation. And that generally comes with a, a defined sentence to solitary confinement. And this was the case in New York where My client Tanya Fenton, for example, she was put into solitary confinement for a year for buying a commissary item for another person who was incarcerated, which is against the rules. You're not supposed to buy things for other people. You're only supposed to buy it for yourself, and the rule is sensible. Um, There, there are reasons. I think yeah, officials don't want that to happen, but the. The question of whether a person should then be locked in a concrete box for 24 hours a day for a year for violating that rule is obviously um, absurd. And, and, and
1: Yeah, it doesn't seem to, the punishment doesn't fit the crime. That's right. does it? Yeah.
0: And then there's the other, the second pathway is administrative segregation. And this is the um, situation when prison officials make a determination that someone is too dangerous to live in the general prison population. Uh, California is a good example of this regime where. California prison officials uh, determine whether or not someone is a gang member, for example. And if they're determined to have a gang affiliation, they might be taken to the special housing unit, the SHU or SHU, and they're put in there with no determinate frame on when they will get out. And people in California um, who had this designation would languish in solitary confinement units literally for 15 20 25 years and there was you know they had no no uh no end date on their solitary confinement isolation there's not a meaningful process for them to get out just a a kind of a torturous um thrown into a black pit and forgotten type of feeling for for these folks and i can talk more about this later but the, the way in which california officials determine whether someone was a gang member was often as insane as reviewing their incoming mail and if they thought that a person who was sending them a letter or picture was flashing a gang sign that could be grounds enough to decide that someone was a gang member and then to put them into the shoe and then the third and final pathway and the one that you're mentioning debbie is that um, there is a uh, type of of housing classification in, in our prison systems referred to as protective custody this is kind of the opposite of administrative segregation With administrative segregation, prison officials are saying, you're too dangerous to be in the general prison population. We have to remove you so you don't hurt other people. With protective custody, prison officials are supposed to be making the judgment that this person is so vulnerable that they can't be in the general prison population. So they need to be protected. And this could include um, LGBTQI folks. It could include a police officer who's being incarcerated. It could include... Um, You know, a a monolingual Spanish speaker who is not going to be able to to operate and take care of themselves in an all English speaking environment. And as a concept, protective custody, I think, is a best practice in in jails and prisons. Certainly should be removing vulnerable people from the general population and putting them into a different place where they can be safe. But what it looks like in reality in a lot of prison systems is that they don't have a, protect, a different living unit, a protective custody unit to send that person to where they might be put with like five or 10 other people who also share that same vulnerability and they get all the same programming and food and everything else that everyone else gets. A lot of prisons don't have that uh, capacity or they've chosen not to create that type of unit. So instead, they take these really vulnerable people. And they put them in solitary confinement for their own protection so they're, they're essentially being punished for their vulnerability and this is especially true in local county lockups uh like here in denver or other cities the local county jails are places where there's very high turnover people do not spend usually more than a year in a, in a local county jail if they're going to be doing more time they would go to a state prison and especially in, in small, rural and suburban county jails, there is no place to put someone that you need to protect And the kind of default for a lot of county sheriffs who run these facilities is like, well, if we've got, we have someone who only speaks Spanish or we have someone who, um, whose sexual orientation is, is, a, a subject of discrimination and oppression and violence, well, we'll just throw them in solitary confinement and they may stay in solitary confinement for, for months until they have their court date, and that is not an a common phenomenon in, in the U.S.
1: And it's sad because some of the people's vulnerabilities, you know, make it even, you know, harder or worse. What are, so you've alluded to some of the downsides for sure already, but could you speak a little bit about, you know, why this is an inhumane practice and, and a risk for people's personal and sort of public health?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think at the most basic level, if, if anyone imagines themselves, you know, locking yourself in your bathroom or, or putting yourself into an elevator, you know, the title of our book, Six by Ten, um, references six by ten feet, which is the average size of a solitary cell in the United States and is about the size of an elevator, about the size of a parking space, maybe the size of most average bathrooms. And you think about just sitting there alone by yourself for 12 hours, 24 hours, 48 hours, and then you extend that into days and, and weeks. I think the, you know, the social and mental health effects of, of that isolation probably become pretty visceral for, you know, for anyone who thinks about being that alone, um, that out of control for that long of, of a time. And... You know, we know. I think also from um, behavioral research and and, and um, science that human beings are so, are social creatures, and p- interacting with other human beings is a part of establishing and maintaining our sense of self and ourselves, our, our sense of identity. And what we've seen in American solitary confinement units is basically a form of social death, where people, even even very well-adjusted, healthy people experience extraordinary amounts of, of of anguish and and loss of identity and loss of dignity and you know um, to to put it colloquially like go crazy uh, in in these solitary confinement units. So there's kind of that that bucket of conceiving of what isolation means for for average folks. Um, there's also a great deal of psychological. And behavioral health research now about how solitary confinement affects people um, which is a is a tragic thing that is so common and so pervasive that psychologists and psychiatrists have now dedicated their careers to understanding better understanding the effects of solitary confinement on people and the kind of lead researcher here is is dr craig haney um, out of uc berkeley in california and he's kind of described or tried to, to tried to describe or characterize the constellation of mental health effects that happen in solitary confinement as SHU syndrome. I mentioned earlier in the podcast that SHU, S-H-U, is an an acronym for Special Housing Unit, which is the name of the solitary units in California. And SHU syndrome uh, often involves, um, you know, hallucinations, uh, all sorts of aberrational Behavior, self-harm, suicidal ideation—kind um, uh, of a whole, you know, whole host of different manifestations of the expression of the trauma that the human being is experiencing because of, of the isolation. And I think you know, Dr. Haney has probably uh, observed and interviewed thousands and thousands of people who have been subjected to these conditions, and you know, has I think done a phenomenal job of documenting. Uh, the harms that are caused by by solitary confinement for people who may not have any pre-existing mental health conditions before before they go in and then there's the folks who who are put into solitary confinement who have existing serious mental health or men, or other mental health diagnoses and this is an extremely common phenomena in prisons and jails because people who have Mental health illness, mental health problems in, in prisons and jails, they're often arrested on the street and incarcerated because they cannot comply with, um, you know, kind of the, the norms of, of the society that they're operating in and they're not getting any effective treatment or support. And then they go into the prison and jail and the treatment and support is even more limited if it exists at all. So people often. Decompensate once they're incarcerated, and then when they're exhibiting behavior that uh, is driven by that decompensation, it's seen as like you know a, a behavioral or disciplinary issue by prison officials who may have little or no appreciation of of, of mental illness, and so they throw that person into the solitary. They can't they can't deal with that that person that bipolar person who's not getting any treatment, and so they throw that person into solitary confinement. And then that person who is bipolar when they're in solitary confinement, they get even worse. And, and the effects of solitary confinement on someone who is bipolar or someone who is schizophrenic or someone who has some other kind of, you know, dsm four type of, of diagnosis is really, really severe. And the rates of suicide and self-harm among that portion of the population who are in solitary confinement is just astronomically and tragically high, and you know, I I think for for the time that I was really paying attention to news articles about about that, especially during my the the litigation that we were that we had um, with the New York State Department of Corrections, someone was dying in solitary confinement like every week, you know, if not a couple times a week, and a lot of the people who were Who were dying in solitary confinement were people who had pre existing serious mental health problems that were then thrown into these isolation units. So you've got, like, you know, kind of a common person's understanding of what it would mean to be isolated. You've got a psychological um, definition about the consequences of isolation on everyone, but including people with these serious mental health conditions. And then the third and maybe a little bit more neglected part of the effects are the, are the medical and physical effects, um, which are really consequential. If you're in a six by, six by 10 cell 24 hours a day or 23 hours a day for months at a time, uh, many people experience extraordinary muscle atrophy and hy- really, really uh, severe hypertension, develop diabetes, um, eyesight loss is a real problem. And all of those medical consequences obviously are very closely related and integrated to the mental health um, trauma that people experience at the same time. So people's bodies start to fail them when when they're in these units. People with medical conditions who go into solitary confinement units experience the same type of decompensation often in their medical condition that people with mental health problems do because access to medical care is severely restricted in solitary confinement units. So, you know, if you were receiving chemotherapy or if you were a diabetic or if you need any other type of, you know, long-term care, your ability to, to, in the very best case, your ability to get that care is gonna be interrupted when you go into solitary confinement and there might be a significant amount of time before it resumes. And in most cases, even though prisons, I think on paper will say, they deliver adequate medical care regardless of, of where someone is housed. My experience is that in 99% of cases, if you're in solitary confinement, you're no longer regularly getting your medications. You're not regularly being seen by a doctor. And so your your medical condition will deteriorate as well while you're locked up in solitary.
1: Well, as a psychologist, I can say with authority that we are social creatures and we're meant to be in the social world, isolation is considered a form of torture because that's just not how we're meant to be. We're also meant to move our bodies, you know, living in that little space where you can barely move. No wonder people have health problems because we're just not, made to be in that kind of situation. And so for me, this is really interesting, I think, to hear. Um, It's important to know about about the psychological effects of this much isolation. And and you mentioned a little bit earlier, but I was wondering if we could talk more about how the people that you talked to had to go from that environment, you know, go from solitary out into the world to try to just readjust to normal day-to-day life outside. What are some of the psychological effects that you see there sort of down the road?
0: Yeah. um, I will say that there's no person who I've spoken to who has ever spent a significant amount of time in solitary confinement and does not have lasting consequences um, from that experience. There's, of course, a wide range of experiences for people uh, you know, based on who they are and who they were at the time that they went into solitary and how long they stayed there. You know, I do think some people are almost uh, unable to function in an environment after they get out of solitary confinement. And I, I actually saw and heard that directly from a number of people that I spoke with in New York who had spent a significant amount of time in New York's shoes. And when they got out into the general prison population, it was terrifying for them. They couldn't, um, they couldn't operate. There's a ton of stigma that comes with that from other people who are in the general prison population. But more than that, I think they're just they're, they're so um, damaged by the isolation that the prospect of being in a crowded cafeteria with 100 other people was debilitating. And one effect of that is that people would ask to go back to solitary or they would commit another disciplinary infraction so that they could get back into solitary It's the only way they could kind of deal with the trauma that they, that they were experiencing. Um, on the streets, you know, one story that really leaps out for me that's also in the book is the story of Brian Nelson who spent about two decades in solitary confinement in the Illinois state prison system. And he describes after getting out and, and living with his mom, just sitting in his basement in a really small closet for hours and hours and hours at a time. And it was like the only place that he could feel comfortable was was kind of recreating to some extent the isolation that he experienced before. He also describes things that I think are common for people of just anyone who has any kind of trauma or mental health, I think you, um, can feel isolated, even in a very social environment, because you don't know if people can relate to or understand or will be empathetic to your uh, experience and, and your situation. I think that's magnified for people who have spent time in solitary. You know, it's, it's one thing to tell a friend or family member, you know, hey, I'm going through a divorce or, or hey, I was I was abused as a child. Um, it's it's a different thing to say, hey, I was in prison. Uh, which automatically pushes people away um, for for a lot of folks and then say, yeah, and I was in solitary confinement for a very long time. And like, that's what I'm dealing with. That's what I'm struggling with. I think that there are very few people I've spoken with who have gotten out of solitary who have found meaningful networks of, of other survivors so that they have someone who can relate to their story that they can be honest and vulnerable with. And even just on the clinical level, Brian has been trying to find a psychiatrist or psychologist to work with for years. And there are just very few professionals who have spent any time with this population who know how to work through this trauma with them. The person that Brian has had the most success with is actually someone who has, um, uh, done a lot of veteran care and, you know, is familiar with, with the PTSD and trauma of war, which I think is, a step in the right direction, but still, still an ill fit for him. Other people who are profiled in the book, like uh, my client, Tanya Fenton uh, in New York, I think describe effects that are more subtle, but perhaps just as consequential in terms of disrupting her ability to reintegrate into society and and kind of, you know, form new friendships and relationships. She's, she's deeply distrustful. Um, She's very uncomfortable in social situations She had a panic attack the first time that she got into an elevator and the doors closed because it just triggered so much of her same experience of having the door slammed behind her in her solitary confinement cell. You know, I think that for people who come out of solitary confinement and survive without the really debilitating, obvious kind of consequences that someone like Brian faced are almost always experiencing the type of things that, that Tanya faced, which is you know in, internally um, a, an extreme amount of anxiety and stress and fear about being in crowded situations or being uh, in situations that replicate the conditions of their confinement. And those effects spill out into all parts of their life, right? You know, it's, it's so hard after you get out of prison to find housing and to find employment. There are literally thousands of laws that restrict you from taking certain jobs or living in certain places. You have often no income. People have often lost most or all of their family connections and their, and their network of friends when they're incarcerated. So you're coming out with no money, no support, a million obstacles in front of you. It's, as, it's, it's so hard as that is. To try to find a job and reestablish your life, and then when you add on top of that or underneath it, depending on your perspective, uh, the trauma of being incarcerated, and if that trauma included this like you know brutally um, damaging experience of, of solitary confinement, it's all it's all the much worse for that. And so, people coming back to the streets after having spent time incarcerated and in solitary confinement, I think, just have the biggest possible hurdles and challenges that they could ever face. And the other piece of this that I'll mention that I'm sure is interesting to you, Debbie, and to the listeners is that that not only do you not have social networks to rely on or the ability to get a job or housing easily, but the ability to get counseling or mental health treatment is almost non-existent for people once they're outside of the, of the carceral setting. And Obamacare helped with that a bit, but it's still extremely difficult for people who are released from jails and prisons to get any type of meaningful treatment or health care. So, you know, that includes people who might have had pre-existing mental health conditions, um, got very little treatment when they were in, then they experience solitary, they get worse, and then they're released and they've got nowhere to go, nowhere to turn to. So not surprisingly, among incarcerated people who are released, you know, rates of homelessness, rates of suicide are far higher than the general population.
1: Wow. That's really important to talk about. Thank you. I hope some people listening will um, just be more aware of that and maybe people can try to work toward, you know, remedying that. And I mean, it makes sense that I think that given the amount of trauma and what people go through. It does, it reminds me of PTSD in my work with veterans, I think, to an even more extreme degree in terms of how it's affecting people psychologically.
0: That's right. And, you know, there's, I know that there's a great deal of shame, um, even amongst veterans who feel that, you know, they, they let their, um, their fellow soldiers down or, or what have you, but at least in the broader society, you know be, being a veteran is like is a very honorable thing and so i think that even for for veterans who are struggling with like those deep problems at least there's a there's a bit outside of of their own head that society wants and supports them and is willing to accept them and and wants to help them through their their trauma i mean i've been i've been impressed by the amount of of socialization that has happened in popular culture with the normalization of PTSD for soldiers, understanding that they experienced that trauma and like and embracing that and accepting that for them. For people who've been incarcerated and in solitary, there's nothing but like stigma and disdain for those people. So not not only are they kind of struggling with the loss of dignity and shame that they have internally, but externally as a society you know, if people are even aware of this at all, their, their reaction is usually one of revulsion and disgust. So the um, kind of shame is just magnified even more from both the external and the internal factors.
1: Yeah, shame and, and moral injury. We've been hearing more and more about moral injury. I, I think it would be interesting to talk a bit more about the conditions, what it's like in solitary. And I know from reading your book that there's some variation that it can be really different um, in different facilities. I was wondering though, since the stories in your book are so powerful, if you could give just maybe one example of the kinds of conditions that you've learned about through kind of a a bit of a summary of one of the stories that you've heard.
0: Sure. Um, I'll, let me tell people kind of what the big scope is. And then I'll, I'll zoom down, I think, to Tanya Fenton's story in New York it was my client in the lawsuit and a person I knew quite well. And also uh, a place where I got to see personally what those solitary cells cells looked like. So as you, as you mentioned, uh, Debbie, solitary can look like a lot of different things throughout, uh, various parts of the country. It can be everything from your conception of like a dungeon, that uh, there are solitary confinement units in Missouri, for example, that are dirt floors with nothing but a cot in it, and it's the in the basement of of the prison unit. So there's literally no sunlight there. All the way to the facilities that we have here in in Canyon City, Colorado, the federal facilities, which were purpose built just a couple decades ago for solitary confinement. So they're they're shiny new cinder block buildings with remote control operated doors. Um, you know, and they're they're the kind of modern manifestation of this form of torture and and everything in between, but the common defining feature, regardless of how the solitary cell looks um, or feels, is the near total deprivation of meaningful human interaction. In New York, what the solitary confinement unit that Tanya Benton was held in is Part of a, a cookie cutter set of units that New York built in the 1990s in response to this kind of tough on crime push called a Shoe 200 is called a Shoe 200 because there are 200, um, 200 people can be held in this unit at any one time. And they built, I think maybe around a dozen of these shoe 200s at various prison facilities around New York State on the campus of existing prison facilities. Tanya was incarcerated at, in Bedford Correctional Facility, which is just about an hour and a half train ride north from New York City. And her um, shoe 200 unit, if you were walking down the hallway of these units, you would see a white cell door with a very small six by three window in a solid steel door, thick reinforced solid steel. And there's a food tray uh, probably about waist height of that, of that cell. And then you open up the cell and you step inside and New York cells are a bit bigger um, than your average solitary confinement cell. And I'll say more about that in a second, but they have a a, a bunk that's built into the wall. They have a toilet and sink. Combination that's built into the corner, so the the where the water tank of a normal household toilet would be is where the sink is, and then the toilet is beneath that and there's a small desk, and in the back of the cell, there's another door, and you open that door, it would take you out to a small concrete cage that on the um, exterior side of it has thick wire mesh. That leads to the outside, so it's like a little uh, patio that's about a quarter of the size of the solitary cell. So, on an average day for Tanya, if she's in that cell, she would be allowed um, uh, three books, I believe, at that time, a a news, a daily newspaper, if another prisoner hadn't taken it, and that is it. No radio, no TV, no access to any other type of stimulation. She would have the lights go on in her cell probably around five in the morning. Um, her first food tray would come up around six o'clock and you're getting food that is served by correctional officers who open that f- food tray door and just push the food tray through and then slam it closed. And one feature of solitary confinement that is nearly universal, but is certainly a part of Tanya's experiences is is that correctional officers use food or the deprivation of food to taunt prisoners, to retaliate against them. Sometimes they're just lazy. So like whether that food comes through the the tray door at six or whether you even trust that hasn't been like spit on or tampered with is something that's constantly in your mind when you're when you're getting that food tray. And then, you know, for the next five, six hours, you're just alone in that cell with nothing to do and and no one to talk to and maybe just a few books or or a newspaper um, to occupy your time and your mind. Um, Then around 2 p.m., in Tanya's case, she would get her one hour of recreation. And what that means in New York is that the cell door that faces the patio, the recreation cage would pop open. It's automatically operated by guards at a, in a control booth. It would pop open and she could go outside for an hour to be in a smaller concrete cage that has some exposure to fresh air. And whether it's 120 degrees or whether it's negative 10 degrees, which in upstate New York is, is you know actually a real thing in the winter time, doesn't change the clothing that she gets um, at all. And there's nothing to do in this box. There's not a pull-up bar. There's, she's not allowed a basketball. There's there's literally nothing to do in the box except get some exposure to fresh air. And depending on the time of day and the time of year and what cell you're in, maybe some sunlight um, through, through that metal grate. And then after an hour, you are over the intercom, you get buzzed to come back in And so you walk from your patio back into the small cell and the door closes and locks behind you. And then your rest of the day is waiting for your dinner tray to come. And then the lights would go out maybe around 8 p.m. And that's how you live your day for weeks and months and in Tanya's case, almost a year um, in, in that environment. Um,
1: And as a reminder, she's the one who was in there for a year because she used a credit card to buy something for a friend.
0: That's right. And she also got more time when she was in solitary. She's already in solitary um, and she got another ticket or a write up when she was in there because she used some magazines to make um, small triangle footballs. I don't know if folks, listeners played this game when they were kids in middle school or or high school, but, you know, she would fold up a small piece of paper into a triangle and then hold it underneath the point of her finger and flick it to mimic a field goal. And a guard walked by and saw her doing that and wrote her up for destroying uh, state property. And she was given additional, I think an additional 30 days in solitary confinement for that. And I mean, as absurd and like horrible as that is, it's actually a pretty mild example Folks who have real serious mental health problems will often, you know, try to clog the toilet. They will they'll try to rip stuff apart. They will just bang on the door for hours and hours and hours at a time um, trying to get guards attention. And the response is often to just give them more and more and more solitary confinement time. So they end up in kind of this endless, bottomless downward spiral uh, of time. Um, just going back to Tanya's experience in her cell for, for a second that, you know, Tanya, what Tanya always described to me and what I've heard from a lot of prisoners is that the, the temperature in the units is often just, um, always aggravating. It's either far too cold in the winter or far too hot in the summer. The ventilation is horrible so you might already have a sense of like a suffocating feeling just from the isolation of being in that environment, but like you're also literally often not getting very much circulated air in the cell and no fresh air at all from the outside, except for your your hour of recreation time. The other kind of features of just the daily experience that I've heard a lot about and heard about from Tanya too is that for when you're in units with that are housing people who are seriously mentally ill. There is a fair amount of, of defecation um, within the cell, people painting on the walls with their own feces, and especially people trying to throw feces or urine on the correctional officers as they walk by. Um, so not only is that just horribly dehumanizing um, and, and awful, but the unit itself often smells really badly of excrement and urine. Sometimes for like weeks, weeks at a time, and then the the final thing I, I you know that really sticks out for me in terms of the visceral experience is just how, in the same way that it's like always too hot or it's always too cold, the sounds of the solitary confinement units are really um, leave a, a, a really lasting impression in my mind. For for Tanya, you know, she would describe how it would either be deathly quiet for stretches and stretches of time where you you, know, you already feel like you're dying in the solitary confinement cell and then there's like almost no um, evidence of other human existence out there. It's, it just feels like you're alone on the moon or the opposite end of the spectrum. There would be people in the unit who were like really suffering from uh, you know, a mental health issue and having a crisis. And so there would be constant banging and and cursing and screaming for hours at a time that the correction officers would ignore. And then when they came in, they'd scream back at that person and ultimately might do what's called a cell extraction, where they come in like a SWAT team with um, body armor and um, batons and pepper guns. And they force that person out of their solitary cell and they take them to a mental health observation cell which is usually like a rubberized room or a padded room in the prison facility. So it kind of would swing between deathly silence and like horrible screams of anguish and like incredible noise that you couldn't escape from, even if you wanted to, you know, try to cover your ears and and block it out.
1: Wow. Makes me feel a little sick to hear about it, but I think it's important for people to know what's happening. Um, There's, a ray of hope, I think, in your book, you write that change is happening, and it sounds like there is some progress thanks to you and other people who are working on criminal justice reform. Um, could you talk just really briefly about what what's giving you hope, what progress have you seen, and what can people do if they're they're kind of struck by this and they want to try to do something?
0: Yeah. Um, yeah I think it is an extremely hopeful time for those of us who have been involved in this work. We are seeing you know more attention paid to this issue and more movement on this issue, I think in the last five to ten years than we had seen in the last fifty and I think it's you know it's important to be optimistic while also not you know minimizing the amount of of uh injury and trauma and oppression that people are experiencing or the extraordinarily long road and big hill we have ahead of us to ending America's mass incarceration crisis and abolishing solitary confinement. But the trends and the momentum have definitely been in the right direction over the last few years. And so I'll I'll lift up a few things. I think the first thing that's important for everyone to understand is that we don't actually know how many people are in solitary confinement at any one time or over the course of a year in America. And the fact that we don't track that data or try to keep tabs on how often solitary confinement is used is really indicative of how cavalier jail and prison officials are about throwing people into solitary confinement. And I mentioned that in part because like, one of the first things that we've seen happen over the last five to 10 years, is prison officials getting more serious about trying to keep tabs on that data and also some states enacting legislation that requires prison officials to track who's in solitary for what reasons and for how long. And that's really critical because until we get our hands around the scope of the problem, it's very, very hard to address it. You know, we we think that on any given day, there's about 100,000 people in solitary confinement, In the U.S. over the course of the year, there might be something like a million people who cycle in and out of solitary confinement for some period of time. But until you really know, you know, what what the scope and depth of the problem is, it's hard to mobilize um, the public and legislators to embrace a solution. Um, But some states are really there and are leading the way. And in Colorado, where where we are, Debbie, is one of those states and um, in, in Yay, the, Colorado, in, yeah, in the mid 2000s, um, the U.N. put out a special report on solitary confinement. And as part of that report, there was a deep survey of mental health professionals um, and mental health organizations who had um, studied solitary confinement and formulated a recommendation that the U.N. adopted that solitary confinement should never be imposed on any person for longer than 15 days because the potential consequences after that time are just too great. The risks are too great and the affront to human dignity is too great. And Colorado has adopted that 15-day standard within their state prison system. Um, Not too many years after that report was written, the director of the Colorado State Department of Corrections at, at the time, Rick Ramish, spent a 24 hour period in one of Colorado's solitary confinement cells he he locked himself in there for a day and then he wrote a very powerful op-ed in that was published in the New York Times about how traumatic just that one day of solitary confinement was for him even knowing that he could get out at any point that he wanted and even knowing that he would be out you know within a 24 hour period and that i think was part of him sending a signal to his prison system that he was going to make some really um, deep changes when it came to solitary confinement in Colorado. And over the course of several years, they moved toward this 15-day limit on solitary confinement, where now there's there's no circumstance in which any person will be held in 23 or 24 hour a day lockdown more than 15 hours a day. There's still more progress to be made even in Colorado. What the alternative uh, to solitary confinement now looks like in Colorado includes mental health units that have more staffing, more mental health staffing, more access to programming, more counseling. But the people held in those units are still often held in their cells for 18 to 20 hours a day. So they might get out of their cells for like four to six hours a day to get some treatment, to get some counseling, to be exposed to other human beings. But those are still very, very harsh conditions, obviously. But it, it's, it's a really um, exciting move in the right direction. In New York, where I was doing my work, when we started, there were 5,000 people being held in solitary confinement on any one day. That number has dropped. I think most recently to about 2,200 people. So we've gone, um, we've reduced that number by less than half. And the length of time that people are are, are staying in those conditions has been dramatically shortened. And the access that people now have in those units to some pretty basic things, but um, things like a radio, a TV, unrestricted access to books, as many magazines as you want, more in-cell programming where a counselor or an educator might come to your cell door. We've done a little bit to improve the conditions of confinement in addition to just reducing the number of people who are held in those circumstances. That's great. And the,
1: Thanks for yeah, the work the product, you're doing, Taylor.
0: Yeah. Well, um, thank you, Debbie, for saying that. It's, it's, you know, it, 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 My ambivalence in, uh, that I expressed at the beginning of the podcast around this advocacy and then also um, the the real experiences of people who are in these conditions extends even to this celebration of success because while we have made real progress, I mean, the ultimate goal has to be the abolition, the complete abolition of of this tool. And I think it's also worth noting here for people who wanna be optimistic that, every Western European country um, has a prison system. Western European countries have crime rates that are almost the exact same as the United States, putting aside gun violence for a second. And all of those prison systems do not use solitary confinement at all. There's a there's a program of taking prison officials from the United States over to tour prison systems in Norway and in England and in Germany and in France and in a lot of those systems the maximum amount of time that you could ever put someone into isolation is for 4 hours it's used as like a timeout tool for imminent threats to safety when there's just no other way to control this person and you need to keep people safe then you can put them in an isolation cell for a short amount of time but you know it's it's i think been eye opening for American state prison officials to see that you can run a safe and effective prison system, even with very dangerous people, without having to use solitary confinement at all. And, you know, it's a great time for people who are interested and motivated and getting involved in this issue to be involved because we are at kind of a tipping point, I think, where if enough of us all push in the same direction, we can really have a meaningful impact on ending this practice throughout the United States and you know I for people who are interested in buying the book um one thing I encourage you to do is not only to read the book and become familiar with the stories of like real human beings that I think you will grow to um you know appreciate and understand as as whole um as whole people and as having dignity to really kind of deepen and broaden your understanding of what we're doing to people in the criminal justice system but in the back of the book we have a list of 10 concrete things that people can do if they want to help with advocacy on this issue. And I'll, I'll just elevate a few of them here. You know, one is that um, if you want to become a pen pal with someone who is in solitary confinement, it is hard to underscore how extraordinarily useful and important and essential that lifeline can be for someone who is in solitary confinement. And there's a website solitarywatch.com that has a link to a program that hooks people up with, with people who are in solitary confinement and folks on the outside who want to write them, that postcard that you send that person or that Christmas letter, um, or even, of course, uh, you know, more deep correspondence, it might be the only external communication that that person has with anyone else in their life. As I mentioned before, a lot of people just they lose touch with their friends and family. They never had it to begin with. Maybe their crime um, resulted in an estrangement from their, from their friends and family, uh, in addition to the separating effect of incarceration. So being a pen pal is, is, a, is a very meaningful thing that, that people can do um, in a lot of states right now. There are active movements to bring the same type of changes uh, to their state as have been brought to Colorado. So if you're a person who's inclined to be a little bit more active in the fight, uh, I really encourage you to get in touch with your local ACLU affiliate or other local prisoner rights organizations in your state. Um, What makes the difference in getting these laws passed is people turning up and turning out when there's a piece of legislation that's going to be heard uh, at the Capitol or there's a meeting with an influential legislator. If you can be, you know, that, that suburban mom who's showing up saying, you know, I care about this issue. Or if you can be, you know, that high school student who's saying like, I don't want to live in a world where we're keeping people in solitary confinement. Those voices are so impactful and important um, in, in moving legislators to take this issue seriously and to pass laws that really have a profound effect. On on other people's lives, and I think what is a really important part of of changing um, this practice. And third, and finally, I just you know I think that there's a real role for people um, just as voters to to play here when it comes to the movement to end solitary confinement and the movement more broadly to end mass incarceration. The the reason that um, I mentioned at the top of the podcast about why solitary confinement was became such a um, horrible phenomenon in the United States was it's part cultural and it's part political. And all of that shows up in our electoral politics, you know, for, for years and years and years and years, politicians who ran on tough on crime platforms and promised to be ever more punitive are the politicians who won. And it became so imbalanced that even, you know, politicians who might be otherwise disinclined, um, to embrace those policies were silent or would, would say they supported tough-on-crime policies just because they thought it was the only way that they could possibly win an election. So you know when you're voting um, in primaries next year in 2020, if you show up at a town hall, if you're at a forum um, where a candidate is available, if you send an email to a candidate, and especially when you're in the ballot box, Make sure you understand where your local sheriff stands on on solitary confinement. Is there solitary confinement happening in your local city jail? And if so, what is the candidate for mayor going to do about that? Is solitary confinement a feature of your local county jail? And if so, what is the sheriff who's running for election or your local district attorney going to do about that? And ask those same questions and vote with those same issues in mind when you think about your state representatives and your federal representatives. This is a, you know, politicians were an enormous factor in getting us into this crisis. And politics is gonna be a big part of getting us out of this crisis. And what's gonna shift the tide there are people who are active voters, telling their elected officials that they do they will not stand for this anymore that they will not vote for candidates who don't pledge to to change the system and then going out and holding them accountable after the election happens.
1: That's great and I think as a mental health clinician I'm now thinking you know what can we do as mental health providers to you know provide treatment for people who need it so that's something I'm kind of thinking about in my head now so I appreciate it Taylor mm-hmm. thank you you're doing your part for sure to raise awareness and I really appreciate you joining me today
0: well thank you Debbie it's been so great to talk with you and really um, thrilled that we had this time together and that more people can can learn about this issue and hopefully be spurred to some action.
1: Me too. Thank you. Thanks, Debbie.